Have you ever tried to do something nice for someone and they didn't recognize it? Or maybe they didn't appreciate it as much as you thought they would? Or worse than that, have you ever done something nice for someone and someone else got the credit for it? Well, if you're anything like me, you probably hate when that happens. The more I read the book of 1 Peter, the more I realize that living the Christian life is exactly like that. It's like doing something good for someone who doesn't appreciate it. Actually, it's like doing good for someone who hates you and wants you to suffer for it. Now, why would anyone in their right mind sign up for that? Well, if you read the Bible, you realize that Jesus endured that kind of treatment and worse for us. He did it so that we could be in right standing with God, so that we could live the life we were meant to live, and so that we could have a home in heaven for eternity. So with that in mind, can we talk? Hey friends, and welcome to From the Pulpit, a series of podcasts based on the Sunday morning sermons at Liberty Church. My name's Pastor Matthew, and I'm thrilled that you decided to join me for this installment of From the Pulpit. Peter asks this really provocative question in chapter 3, verse 13 of his first letter. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now a lot of Christians take this to mean that no one will harm us if we're really good. And if we are being harmed or persecuted or reviled, or if they're talking about us behind our backs, that we're doing it wrong and that we're not really Christians and that we give Christians a bad name. But I really believe the opposite is true. I believe that if we're not being reviled, if we're not being persecuted and hated, if they're not talking about us behind our backs, that's when I believe we're doing it wrong. I say this all the time. If you're a Christian and the world doesn't hate you, then you're doing it wrong. It's really that simple. If they don't hate you, you've missed the point. Because when I read the New Testament, I draw the conclusion that if I follow the instructions of Jesus and his apostles, I will be hated, persecuted, and possibly killed for it. And there's really no other conclusion to draw when you read the New Testament, Jesus and his apostles 
Well, they were hated for their message. And they tell believers in no uncertain terms that if they follow Jesus, they too will be hated, persecuted, and likely killed unless they run for their lives. It's the megachurch pastors with goatees and pleated khakis and Hawaiian shirts that have convinced the church that the world should be attracted to our buildings and our programs and our messaging. But the apostles wrote many of their letters from prison. The book of Acts tells us that Christians were persecuted, imprisoned, and even stoned to death for believing and preaching that Jesus is Lord. What the megachurch pastors of the 20th and 21st century are saying is inconsistent with Scripture, which means one of them is wrong. It means that Scripture is wrong or the megachurch pastors are wrong. I'm going with the megachurch pastors are wrong, the, the celebrity pastors with book deals. They're the ones that are wrong. I mean, Peter wrote two of his letters to a group of Christians who lost everything because they practice their belief that Jesus is Lord. Those three words, Jesus is Lord, is really the, the first creed of the early church. The creed of the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. Remember when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate? And... He asked the people, would you have me crucify your king? It was Caiaphas, the high priest, who shouted back, we have no king but Caesar. That, that pagan creed, Caesar is Lord, had, had seeped into the religious culture of the day, had seeped into Judaism at its highest level. And so here comes this small group of, of uneducated tradespeople, you know, the, the fishermen and the carpenters. Here comes this little group of, of people who believe that, that Jesus was Messiah and that because he died and rose again, he is actually Lord of all. He's, he's the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, who's been given the name above all names. I mean, that was so counterculture. That was so unpopular. And, and Caesar hated the Christians. I mean, the Roman emperor Nero... He uh, hated Christians so much and 
persecuted Christians so much that he would uh, have his, his Roman soldiers arrest Christians and imprison them, and then he would keep them in prison till they were starving to death and dying of thirst, and he would set them out into the Colosseum to fight gladiators or lions and bears for the entertainment of the Roman citizens. Or he would take some of the Christians and dip them in tar and impale them and hang them on the walls of the palace and light them on fire to provide light for his all-night sex orgies. I mean, that's... (laughs) That's the level of persecution that the first century church faced. And the book of Acts tells us that in spite of that, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. (laughs) It really makes you think, doesn't it? Where have we missed the point? How did we get so far from that how did we get to and listen we have this at liberty but like how did we get to churches with with cafes and sound and lighting systems and paved parking lots and tax exemptions and uh, charitable status like how did we get there How did we get there from the New Testament first century reality? I I think there is a sense in which it it is as a result of, of God's favor and he's building his church and he builds his church throughout the ages of history and he builds his church within the culture. Um, He doesn't build his church to suit the culture, but he builds it within the culture. I mean, Jesus came, was born of a woman, born under the law. He was born within a historical and cultural context, and, and Jesus has been building his church within historical and cultural contexts. That's part of the reason why we enjoy what we enjoy as, as Christians in the 20th and 21st century. But I have to be a prophet of woe and lamentation here and say that I believe that era is quickly coming to a close. The sad reality is a lot of churches and a lot of Christians are really comfortable And so I think a lot of them are going to compromise, and I think a lot of them are going to cave to the spirit of the age. They are going to cave to the pressures of cultural conformity. They're going to go along with whatever human institution tells them to. And I can promise you that I will not. (laughs) Liberty Church will not go along with the uh, spirit of the age. We will stand in direct opposition to it at all costs. 
And I say that not because I'm anything special. I say it because I believe what the Bible says. I don't believe what the megachurch pastors say. I don't believe what the, the celebrity pastors with book deals say. I, I don't believe what the church growth gurus say. I believe what Scripture says. And scripture tells me that when I do good, when I live my faith, when I obey, it will result in the world hating me for it. And there will come a time when it will result in the world wanting us dead for it. And there will come a time when many will die for it. I think with good intentions, a lot of preachers and teachers over the years have encouraged the church to be, to be nice, to be friendly, to be neighborly, to be kind, uh, to be generous, and, and to be gracious, to just, to just understand people and just, to just listen to them and hear where they're coming from and, and find points of commonality rather than points of conflict. But the New Testament tells us something so different than that. Yeah, it does tell us to, to put away malice and envy and hypocrisy and backbiting and slander and sexual immorality and all kinds of other things. It tells us to put those things away. But it also tells us to renounce those things whenever and wherever we see it in others. It does not tell us to renounce people. It tells us to renounce those things whenever and wherever we see it. I say all the time now that the church's role is to speak to the conscience of the culture and to speak to the conscience of human institution. And now more than ever, we must speak because the conscience of the culture and the conscience of human institution is seared. And there is no such thing as wrong and right in the culture anymore. There's no such thing as wrong and right in our human institutions. They have adopted full force the spirit of the age, which is really a doctrine of subjective truth. But the Bible is a document filled with objective truth. The spirit of the age is a doctrine of subjective truth. The Bible is a document filled with objective truth. It's filled with objective truths about God, about humanity, and our interaction with God and one another, and how Christ came into humanity to reconcile humanity to God. And so that is the message of the Bible the Bible is the standard for all objective truth. It is the standard for all reality. It is the standard by which society, culture, and human institutions must govern itself. But sadly, society, culture, and human institutions have abandoned objective truth 
have abandoned the objective standard for truth, which is the Bible, and have followed after the spirit of the age, which is a doctrine of subjective truth. They've removed God from the equation. They've committed again the original sin, which is I will be like God. I will be God. I will be my own God. I will establish my own standard for truth and I will live by it. So Peter is reminding his his audience, these elect exiles of the dispersion. He's reminding them to do good even when it doesn't produce a good result. And the reason for that is because Christ suffered on their behalf to save them and give them a living hope kept for them in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Peter reminds them, keep doing good even when they call it evil. Keep doing good even when it doesn't produce a good result. Keep doing good even though they hate you for it. Because Christ did the same thing. Jesus kept his Father's will perfectly. And he kept it at great personal expense. But the Bible tells us that Jesus did it for the joy set before him. And and we are that joy. We are the reward of his suffering. He did it for us so that he could present us to the Father. And we have a joy set before us. It is the grace that is to be revealed to us at the return of Christ, this living hope kept for us in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That reward is set before us. And I believe that's why Peter asks his audience this question in chapter 313. He says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous to do good? He's not suggesting that if they're on their best behavior and if they go along with the culture and cave to societal pressures that no one will hurt them. He's not saying that at all. He's not suggesting that at all. I believe what he is suggesting and and what he's reminding his audience of and by extension what he's reminding us of is that even if they hurt you emotionally and even if they hurt you physically, they cannot hurt you spiritually. They can't hurt you where it matters. They can't hit you where it truly hurts. Listen, it hurts when people hate you. I've been on the receiving end of people's hatred for my belief in Jesus. It hurts. I haven't been hurt physically yet, though I expect to be. I don't intend to be. I'm not going to go out looking for it, but I expect to be. But it hurts when we are persecuted emotionally and physically. But one area that they can't touch. One area they can't hurt us 
is spiritually. Peter was given this instruction by Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, 28, Jesus sends out his 12 apostles because word of Jesus is spreading all throughout Israel. And the demand for Jesus' time and attention is so high that Jesus empowers his 12 disciples to go out with the same authority that he has and to to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, and uh, proclaim the kingdom of God. And so Peter gets this instruction from Jesus before he goes out on this mission. Jesus tells Peter and the disciples, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He tells them, they're going to persecute you. They think they want me, but they don't really. Because to have me means to to take up a cross. And so they are going to persecute you and hate you for this message. But don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid, have fear, or have reverence for the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about what they think. Instead, revere God because he's the one that can harm body and soul in hell. The world can only harm us emotionally and physically, but they can't touch us spiritually because we're sealed. In the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening. He says, expect it. Expect to be persecuted. But it's a test. It's a test. It's going to test the genuineness of your faith. And then he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Because you do, you will also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then down a couple more verses, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to the faithful creator while doing good. There's no excuse for disobedience. We are called to do good even when they hate us for it. Even when they don't appreciate it. Even when they call it evil. Even when they want us dead for it. That brings me back to what I said at the beginning. Have you ever done something good for someone? and they haven't appreciated it? Have you ever done something good and and somebody else got the credit? Living the Christian life is 
similar. We do good in the world. We do good for the world. The world benefits because the church is in the world, and yet the world hates us. But God loves us. And he has promised a home in heaven for us. It'll all be worth it when we get home. Just one glimpse of Jesus in glory will repay all the toils of life. That's basically what Peter's saying when he says rejoice because when you share in Christ's sufferings, you can be assured that you will also be glad when his glory is revealed. And the opposite is true for the unbeliever. For the one who hates you and persecutes you and reviles you, Peter said of them that they will see your good works and praise your Father in heaven when Jesus comes, but it'll be too late. Friends, don't wait until it's too late to call on Jesus. Thanks for listening to this episode of From the Pulpit. Let us know what you think by leaving a comment in the comment section. Give us a five-star review to help us reach more people. And until next time, never forget, it's Jesus only. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Titus 2.13